Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. With us today is one of my dear peers in the field, someone who with incredible experience and expertise in the eating disorders field, Beth Harrell is here to chat about eating disorders education, training, and the value of a team approach to treatment. Beth is a collaborative and weight inclusive nutrition professional who has worked with eating disorders, disordered eating and chronic dieting for the past 30 years. This work spans all levels of care and treating a full spectrum of diagnoses and ages. Beth's passions are anything that includes learning and teaching. She has an educational podcast for eating disorders professionals, check that out, and carries this knowledge into professional supervision, as well as a graduate elective course for dietitians each fall semester. She learns every day from those around her, the clients who teach so much from their lived experience and hard work, and from professionals who share their wisdom and vulnerability. We're so thrilled to have you here, Beth. Thank you for joining. I am thrilled to be here. Very exciting. Honored. Well, let's dive in. I mean, it's super clear that you're uh, knowledgeable and ever curious, but let's start by hearing about your journey to this work. How did you get here and what keeps you so passionate about it? It started when I actually had my first child and I was working a clinical dietitian job in a regular hospital setting. And I just didn't want to be working 40 hours a week plus, And I wanted to spend a little more time with her. So I found a job opening in an eating disorders inpatient hospital program and they took me which just like shocked me because I had no experience but back in the in the early 90s there weren't a lot of people who had a lot of experience anyway so I don't know why they took a chance on me but that's how I started and what keeps me in it and passionate about it seriously is connecting with other people. I could not do this work alone. There's no way I would still be in this field without the amazing colleagues and teachers and clients that I've had along the way. Absolutely. The field has, it really has evolved so much over those past three decades, right? You and I have been in practice about the same amount of time and seen so much change and of course so much left to change. But From an education perspective, as an educator, um, give us a sense of how you've experienced eating disorder education evolve over the span of your career so far. Wow, that's a loaded question, isn't it? One thing comes to mind when I first started is we didn't have a lot of resources, books, webinar. There wasn't such a thing as webinar back then. But what the way that we learned was practice-based evidence and really just putting, just trying different things. And one thing that we got wrong was we didn't understand family-based treatment. So we would try to remove the teen or the child from their parent and empower them to take control because the parent was being too controlling. So that's that was one thing that we definitely got wrong. And we know so much more now, thankfully, because the parents can be the best ally in treatment. And the, then the webinars and things that Dr. Mailer just came out with his fourth edition uh, medical complications book. It's loaded. <laughs> it is loaded. And we're going to be running our third medical series and in, in my podcast, which I know this isn't 
what that's about, but I have a feeling we're going to have to divide his next one into two sessions too. There's just so much there. So yeah, a lot has changed. A lot has gotten better, including programs that I can send my clients to and people being able to talk about their own lived experience as a professional. Those things, I'm going to tell you, this is really interesting that this just popped into my head. When people would ask me what I do, and I would say I'm a dietitian, and then those are the things that you don't want to tell people on an airplane, you're stuck next to them. I think that's a whole nother conversation. But then even saying the word, I work with eating disorders, I had to hush that. I felt like I had to hush that. Mental health was considered to be so stigmatizing. I mean, just such a negative connotation. So I'm glad that's better too. So glad it is. It certainly has some ways to go, but it's so much different. Now we can actually say that and people say, oh, I know somebody with an eating disorder or I had an eating disorder instead of what yeah. they used to say uh, or not say, the, just the look that we used to get. Uh, yeah. And sometimes that I wish I had as much of an eating disorder. That is the worst. Yeah, that's you never want to say that just to an eating disorder dietitian on an airplane because then you're <laughs> no, you don't. A whole, other, <laughs> whole other thing. Well, how about as you know, from the nutrition perspective, uh, a couple of things. We're we're part of a we're an integral part of the care team, right? There's this multidisciplinary care team that nutrition is really, uh, I think, maybe ever increasingly the bedrock of recovery, at least in the early stages and as it progresses. Uh, so that's changed a lot, but, but the whole concept of mental health having anything to do with nutrition has also changed, right? So from a nutrition perspective, what have you seen change with the, the actual the field of dietetics and nutrition as we've learned more about eating disorders the mm. last couple of decades? These are great questions. With, with nutrition, we know through some of the work that you've done too, Jillian, is the brain-gut connection. And also the word nutrition therapy, I feel we are so careful to stay in our scope of practice, stay in our own lanes, and it's an eating disorder, which means there's, it's a biopsychosocial, and, and the medical doctor may talk about nutrition, the therapist may talk about medications, the, the dietitian may talk about emotions. And we will, we all will. And so that collaboration is a, is something that I learned from a, an amazing clinician here in the Kansas City area. The collaboration is so necessary for the good work and for people to come out the other side knowing that, for example, you mentioned nutrition, how has it changed? People tend to show up in a dietitian's office because they want to lose weight or they they want to eat better, but they want to lose weight. That's how it was back in the day. Nowadays, people want to change their relationship with food. When you say relationship, I think of therapy. And in eating disorders, the medical complications can be so drastic that we all have to be together in it. So that's how nutrition has changed. And in the education, I do teach a graduate elective course. And even the textbooks that we have, you know, we didn't have those back in the day. And some of those are getting outdated. And so I'm constantly pulling in things. We didn't have something called social media. And a lot of our clients learn 
to feel a certain way about themselves through what's happening socially in their world. So bringing in social media to the classroom as well. Absolutely. I do a lot of social media use in my, in my course I teach as well. And I think, wow, I don't, I, I just never really saw myself pulling up all these, these resources, but they're there and they they really speak to uh, what's happening today. It's, it's pretty fascinating, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the collaboration and, and the role of supervision. I think that's one of those things that sometimes people are maybe familiar with clinical training as a therapist and understand that as therapists are learning to be therapists and growing and developing as a therapist, they have this thing called supervision. I, I feel like in the nutrition world, it's a little bit less uh, understood. So talk a little bit about the supervision work that you do. What is supervision? Why would somebody do that? How does it benefit clinicians and clients? Yeah, that is a great question. Honestly, when dietitians think about the word supervision, it's my manager at work. Um, they supervise me, they fill out my annual report, and that's pretty much just a manager's job. And, and also there's guidance and mentoring that go along with that, but mentoring and supervision are very different too. And in nutrition and the way that I do supervision is also as a consultant, and we talk through difficult cases, but it's more than that. It's truly understanding how our nervous systems show up in the room. So one of the things that I'm becoming acutely aware of is trauma-informed nutrition care. And some therapists will say, no, dietitians can't do trauma work. I say, no, I'm not doing trauma work. I understand that our nervous systems are in the room and that as the tension increases in the thoughts, as, a, as we're talking through something, I like my supervisees to be able to speak their case to the rest of the group so that I can see their body language, count how many size. This is hard work. And I start out with gratefulness and something that you tried with a client or client shared with you and that you did together that worked for them because we're doing really good work but we feel beat up by the system sometimes just it's it's hard work so yeah supervision isn't just case consultation it is i call it case consultation on steroids <laughs> i love that that's great <laughs> it really gives you that other perspective that and another way to look at it right i always think about supervision as as not exactly what you're saying not like somebody who's supervising your work and looking over your shoulder and checking some box, but is bringing another perspective because we're all better when we have other perspectives that we might miss. Particularly, I, I love what you're saying about our nervous systems, right? That if someone else can help us to see maybe ways that we show up, we're busy showing up and being that way. We're less uh, able to see it when we're in it and to have someone else help us see and experience that is, is really a gift. Do you have a, a couple examples you can think of where where supervision has been particularly helpful to you in your professional growth that you can highlight? How much time do we have? <laughs> Let me think. You know, the, the one that stands out for me was with my first supervisor. And by the way, I have reached out to different supervisors for different reasons, whether it's diversity, 
whether it's transgender, whether it's GI complications, whether it's family-based. So there are dietitians out there who really have their niche in certain areas, and I value reaching out to them for supervision. I still do it. Um, so my first, and I've had several supervisors, but my first one, I remember being at a Renfrew conference. We were, after sessions, we we take notes like crazy, and we were sitting in there talking about a client that I had. And the supervisor said to me, you don't like this person. Oh my gosh, Jillian, I felt awful because that is not my persona. That is, I'm the person who likes everyone. I mean, I feel like I did. And I certainly didn't want that to come across maybe to my client. And so it allowed me to open up in a safe space and talk through, well, what do you mean by that? And I kind of consider it like that blind spot that person is showing me, illuminating it, putting light over this blind spot that I had that was interfering with my work. Absolutely. That reminds me of a conversation I just had, a supervisory conversation with a provider uh, just a while ago that they were saying, you know, I see this person on my schedule and I, I just feel, and they sort of made some body movements with their hands and didn't quite have words. And they just, I just feel, and they finally finished the sentence with, I just feel like I don't like what I'm wearing. And I said, well, that's really interesting, right? So let's just dig into that a little bit. That what is that? What's your body trying to tell you? What are you experiencing? And I thought that's just such a beautiful example of like, yeah, it was really, as we talked through it, it was really that that clinician didn't quite feel equipped to manage a few things that were happening with the client. And we talked through how to refer and get some more support about that and how the clinician could get some more education and training on a particular uh, piece related to trauma-informed care. And and then it was sort of resolving. And I I heard about a month later, like, I had that client on my schedule and I really noticed that I didn't care what I was wearing. Like, that's great. So you were really able to process that and to, to move beyond that sort of physical experience of discomfort that you couldn't name because it really had nothing to do with your clothes and it really had nothing to do with your own you know body in your clothes it was all about how you're feeling yeah I mean honestly your podcast is piecemeal p-e-a-c-e and so it's that piece that we can get from just opening up about what's inside and you invited that in that person you gave your clinician a moment of pause to truly think through it and then they came up with it and dietitians talking about what you're wearing like really we weren't taught that in school how that might affect us I will tell you after I told my story about my first supervision that that's the most memorable I was shaking I was feeling that. And so it's important to acknowledge that we are human. We are, we want to help each other in the best way possible. And sometimes that really can shake us up, make us look at some hard things. It does. And make us have to attend to ourselves, right? Because we, we are as if, as a field in the eating service field broadly and the nutrition part of it more narrowly where we want to help and we want to help people get better and do and it makes me think about self-care right we hear about self-care for our clients and for clinicians 
tell me a little bit about why, why do you think self-care is so important? Because I, I, I know you agree that it is, but tell me about why you think it's so important and so essential in the eating disorders or the mental health field. Oh, I'm going to take a deep breath as part of my self-care. And even the words self-care in our changing field, I have heard can be overused. So I'm just holding space for anyone who's listening to that and saying, oh gosh, not again. So that deep breath is important for me because if I show up or anyone that I work with in a client room and I'm not tending to my own what comes up for me, I'm not helping them in the best way that I can because I need to be there and available for whatever they're going to bring to me. Nothing is too much. And so the self-care is important to me by acknowledging it in the room like I just did with you and in front of all your listeners. And that can feel really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, I recently this year experienced a medical, a pretty severe medical crisis. And I use the example that I hope no one else has to be hit over the head with such a crisis to decide that they're going to take time for self. So it's looking at the numbers of clients that we have and the types of activities that we involve ourselves in and being able to scale back and know that we are enough. We are good. Absolutely. What would you name as maybe a few signs that somebody might experience that they really need to attend more to that experience? Tensing in their body and feeling like you're running hamster on a wheel, I guess, where you're really not making grounds. I like to use the idea of the plates spinning where... I don't know if it's a circus act or, you know, you have to keep every plate spinning. And as one starts to fall, you run that way and that way. That's what it feels like. And sometimes we can see that in our clients and in our supervision sessions of the tenseness or the, like we said, the sighing. Those are some of the signs, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I know, I wonder if you ever experienced this in your, in that first job you had in the inpatient facility that sometimes it's so hard to leave work and have clients that you're literally walking out the door from. And that can be, I think for all clinicians, but particularly I think for, for newer clinicians, that can be really hard to find the balance of, of really doing what you can and also feeling okay leaving. I have an intern with me right now. She's in the Pacific Northwest. And and one of the questions she asked me in one of the first days as we were talking through my schedule and everything else, she said, how do you not bring this home with you? It's a skill. It truly is. As a person who is a human giver syndrome survivor, (laughs) it is. It's really hard. And I think it goes back to collaboration and putting myself in doing case consults with therapists and dietitians, medical providers, but also 
I'm going to be honest, being in my own therapy, being in my own process. I am not someone who's had a diagnosed eating disorder experience. I'm a woman in today's culture, in today's culture. And I can say over, you know, even since I was born in just our culture. So I do experience a lot of that. And I I think it's just kind of a miracle that I didn't have a full eating disorder, but disordered eating, definitely dieting, definitely. So, but the therapeutic process is super important. And that's the intern then said, I think every dietetic student should have their own therapist. And I said, I think every man, woman, child, you know, whatever should have their own therapist because that's a safe place to just be you. Absolutely. I agree. It's a skill and it's in like other skills and all the skills that we teach clients and also professionals in supervision, skills require practice, right? That we just have to keep practicing. It, it, it makes me think of, you know, I, I have, a, have a yoga practice and I always think that like, oh, I have to keep practicing because it just keeps requiring different and new and fresh attention because things change and the world keeps changing and the day changes mm-hmm. and what we what you walk out of the door today might be different than tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And looking at your clinician who with the clothes and the next time it wasn't that big of a deal, you worked through it and something else will come up. <laughs> it won't be the clothes, but we get to see that there's that evolution of, you know, therapy works, nutrition, all of that, it works. It's maybe not on the timeline that we want it to work or even all the learning that clinicians need to do to be in this field, you can't do all the things. Don't worry about it. We learn on our own time. We can hear something today that's maybe the exact same thing we heard five years ago, but today we can accept it. And my class, that's kind of the mantra is, you don't need to know all the answers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it is true. I, I think that we, we have that, maybe that tendency as clinicians to, to need to know it all to see ourselves as the professionals that can answer questions. And we can't know all the answers. We just can't. One person can't know all the answers. And that's, that's part of why we have a team, yes, right? That's yes. part of why, why we have that collaboration. Do you have any fun story you can think of in terms of highlighting a collaboration with another provider, with a therapist or another dietitian that you were having a a tough time with something and that collaboration was really what helped? Yes, I can. We were working with a, and I was, the therapist on the case was a very well-seasoned therapist in eating disorders and this young male and I'm not going to go into diagnostics and struggling with an eating disorder, but also we were working with the medical doctor and this particular patient had put under his parents' door a note saying that he didn't want to live anymore. I know the listeners can't see, but Jillian just put her hand on her heart. And this is one of those things that dietitians therapists are much more equipped to deal with some of this but through that collaboration and sharing what we found out was the medication that the doctor was using 
was black box for ramping up suicidal thoughts. And so because of our conversation and because the therapist and I had decided who would contact the doctor and she contacted the doctor, that doctor then was able to learn because they're not specialists either. Everyone goes into, I I truly believe everyone goes into their area to do the best they can to help people. And so it just was a blind spot maybe of that doctor for that age group. Yeah, that was probably the most powerful. But we also had a family therapist on this case because the parents really needed some of their own support. And I'm going to acknowledge right now, I'm shaking in my body. <laughs> like this is, these are hard cases and they affect me physically. And the the siblings, you know, involved in anyone who is growing up with someone with an eating disorder are affected. So we had a family therapist, we had a medical doctor, uh, individual therapist, and myself. That is an extremely powerful story and, and highlights all so well the power of other people to work on this together. And we know that, that you have a fabulous resource for professionals. I was delighted to get to be on your podcast yeah. earlier this year. Tell us about your podcast. It is called the seasoned RD and the ED is capitalized for eating disorders. So we all come to the field as clinicians with different levels of seasoning. And I have paired with a co-host who's a brand new dietitian in the field so that we can, I kind of talk about myself being the well-seasoned cast iron skillet, something that's passed on from for years and years and years, and it just, it's solid, but always ready for something new, a new recipe, new type of seasoning, whatever, highly seasoned in, in my way. And then Abby, my co-host, is a Instapot, air fryer, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. the new technology is, because she has a different perspective, yet she has her own life experiences. Also, in school, her dietetic internship director's episode just came out. And the things that she was taught from that teacher were so different from what I was taught. And anyone new coming into the field is going to be saying, oh, wait a second, I just, I'm scratching my head, I don't get this. And then they're going to want to grasp for this resource and that resource and this resource and that resource. So the whole premise of the podcast is to say, how did you learn what you learned? Do you have any nuggets for new clinicians in the field? And of course, it's all in the show notes. So excellent. We, we love that podcast and it is a great resource. It makes me think of a question, you know, when we, when we have people on this podcast who have lived experience with an eating disorder and they're in recovery, we ask them to reflect on what might've been helpful for them to hear earlier on in their struggle. So I'm going to ask you a version of that. What do you think would be helpful for new clinicians to hear? Maybe clinicians that are like, oh, I don't know, maybe eating disorders, maybe that sounds interesting, or I, maybe I don't think so. What do you think would be helpful for a new clinician to hear about working in eating disorders? Yeah, find your team to work with and keep learning. Always your client is your best teacher. Mm-hmm. And and that's all. Like that's 
all because we can look at evidence and we can look at this. And I just had a therapist say, I had suggested something that someone else had told me and they said, well, yeah, I'd like to see some of the evidence on that. And I'm like, okay, I don't have any, <laughs> except that this worked for one particular person. And so those first, first person stories, I think as you taught me about that, Jillian, there can be value in that. So really just, just being there, doing the work. Um, there's another episode that I loved. It was titled, We Can't Just Webinar All Day. And so putting yourself in the position to do the work. And another person I worked with said, I don't know if I can do binge eating disorder work and gave me the example of, of a client that they were working with. I said, you're the perfect person to do this. Just dive in and do it. And they were in supervision with me and who knows who else, but also it's just once you have that information, then you can start to apply it to other cases, but always remembering that that person across from you is, is their own unique person. Beautiful. That is a beautiful place for us to end our chat today. We are so, so grateful that you spent some time with us and we're so excited about your podcast. We'll absolutely include that in the show notes. Thank you for spending time with us today. Beth. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.